This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast where each week we take a look at various articles in the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast and today on the podcast myself and Will Moore will be asking why is there such a lack of faith in Western leaders? We'll also be looking at how you go about escaping from the Church of Scientology and finally we'll be asking should we both give boxing a go? First up, we're joined by our deputy editor, Freddie Gray, Callum Williams from The Economist, and Harvard professor Barbara Callaman to discuss why does the world feel so leaderless. Freddie, you write in your cover piece this week about the surprising weakness of Western leadership. Now, a lot of these Western leaders, such as Biden or Johnson or Macron, you know, they were elected with pretty solid democratic mandates. So why is it that you say in your piece that you think that there is a dearth of political authority? Well, I think, just I mean, look around the world and all uh, supposedly advanced democracies are having some kind of crisis in democratic leadership. And what's odd is that we've spent a lot of this century talking about the rise of authoritarianism, and that's definitely true. If you look around the globe, that's you know the major rising powers, China, India, Turkey, places like that, they have authoritarian figures who've become more authoritarian as the century has gone on. And yet you have this paradox of in Western democracies, there's been a lot of talk about the drift towards authoritarianism, yet at the moment, you seem to only have weak leaders or or leaders that are hamstrung by the political systems in which they operate. Barbara, when you look at the current crop of Western leaders, do you think they seem particularly drab by historical standards? You know, I think what we're talking about is what I would call less a crisis of leadership and more a crisis of followership. (laughs) So what's interesting about this moment in time is that it was foreseen by a handful of us, for example, in a book I wrote that came out in 2012 called The End of Leadership. I more or less predicted what's happening now, and it's not because I'm a genius, It's because what's happening now is simply the continuation of an historical trend that began, believe it or not, I hope your listeners are going to stay with me for this one, with the Enlightenment. (laughs) So we're going back centuries here, and I'm not sure how much of this you're going to want to hear, but it began in the 17th and 18th centuries. That is the press from the bottom up, the followers growing discontent with their leadership. In the 19th century, we saw it with fights by women and serfs and African-Americans to get a vote, to be freed, whatever language you wanna use. In the 20th century, it took yet a different shape. I have argued that the so-called rights revolutions of the 1960s further accelerated it. I think uh, if I can continue just for another moment, there's a single moment in time which I like to think of as effectively the ring of a gong, which is the Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton crisis. We can go into that more if you like. And then I have argued about the moment in which we are now. We are talking about changes in the culture 
again, I'm speaking democratic culture and changes in technology, which are further fueling the dissatisfaction of followers. They're not happy. We all are not happy until we are pulling our leaders down. And one more sentence, it explains what has happened in authoritarian countries. Not only are there more of them, but those authoritarian countries that do exist, China and Russia being outstanding examples, the authoritarianism there is notably more rigid than it was, say, a decade ago. So in every, all of this stuff is interlinked. It's not, oh my God, it's amazing. Wow, look where we are in 2022. No, this is a continuation of an historical trend. Uh, Callum, I just want to bring you into the conversation here because Barbara mentioned there some issues about culture, but, but your work is uh, focused on economics. And Freddie mentions in his piece how he believes that the current inflation crisis and cost of living crisis is a is a large factor of the dissatisfaction of people towards their leaders. I mean, do you agree with that as a as a thesis? I do agree with it. I think it's incomplete only because the surge in inflation is relatively recent and until about a year ago the concern among economists mainly was that inflation was too low and that countries were risk at risk of falling into 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 deflation rather than the inflation being too high. That said, Inflation clearly contributes a lot to the feeling of dissatisfaction. There's an interesting sort of divergence between the views of economists and the views of the general public. Normal economists actually struggle to find many very serious economic effects of high inflation. But the general public absolutely, implacably hates inflation. And so it's, in a sense, unsurprising that it would feed into the political process. That said, I think economic factors do explain a great deal of what has happened to political systems over the past few decades. It's unarguable that across the Western world, and indeed across advanced economies as a whole, there's been a very strong slowdown in the rate of economic growth, really going back to the 90s. And that feeds into things like wages, which have been growing much more slowly for most people than they were in the historical past. And then I think that means that, you know, there's, there's, there's a feeling that the political system gives people less than it used to. But I don't think politicians have helped themselves here because, you know, if you think back to the 80s, for, for example, as late as the 80s, politicians had a game plan for how to get economic growth up. You may not have agreed with the plan, what Thatcher was doing, say, and what Ronald Reagan was doing in America, but they certainly had a plan. And now if you think of the big growth enhancing reforms that politicians could implement, so I'm thinking in particular of more sensible competition policy and perhaps above all, better regulation of land, to get the price of housing down, there's almost zero appetite for this. So it's 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 kind of unsurprising, really, that people feel disenchanted with their leaders. Freddie, Barbara mentioned earlier the dream of putting down all these Western leaders, but at the same time in your piece you talk about what Michael Lynn called turbo paralysis, and actually a lot of these leaders don't ever fall. Do you think we're living in a particularly stagnant political time? I think we are, yes. First of all, I'd like to say... Uh, admire Barbara for blaming the Enlightenment. I completely agree with her on that. That was a terrible idea. But I think we are living in a particularly weird time in that everything is paradoxical in that we live in sort of extremely democratic, extremely egalitarian societies where we want our leaders to be exactly what they are not. And so we want authoritarian people to be more liberal. I say we, talking sort of globally. And then we want liberals to be more authoritarian. So Emmanuel Macron is is often held up as the great hope of of left liberal Europhiles. 
And the reason people like him is because he's aggressive about his defence of liberal values, as he calls it. And that often means being very, very authoritarian. So people be very approving of him when he behaves in an authoritarian manner. But if it's in defence of liberal values. Similarly, when someone like Orban poses as a liberal on an issue like, say, let's say African-American, African-Americans and prison reform, crime reform, people are quite grateful for it. We fall upon him or some voters fall upon him and say, look, he's not as bad as we thought he was. So we have very paradoxical ideas about what is authoritarianism, what is liberalism. And because we're in a big mess about what we think about all these things, we're in this state of paralysis. And Callum, just to go back to the economic point, I wonder to what extent the leaders of Western countries or democratic countries, I mean, are they even fully in control? Because so much economic policymaking, for example, feels like it, it, it is out of control with the inflation crisis. And there's so much that is beyond the actual power of Western politicians to affect change. I mean, to, to what extent do you think that Western politicians have just lost control of the economic situation? Yeah, for sure. That is in part a consequence of globalisation. So, you know, the financial crisis of 14 years ago was not really the fault of any politician and was not in the gift of any politician, you know, to stop it or to really control it once it got going. The surge in inflation is basically global. You might blame the third American stimulus plan for, for, for kind of getting it going, but really it's a global phenomenon. But I think often the idea that globalisation just determines what governments can do and utterly constrains their room for manoeuvre is, is, is wrong. There are things that governments can do. I just don't think that the political equilibrium that we have in most countries now, which, to be quite honest, is deter- determined largely by the wishes of elderly people who have very little interest in economic growth, militates against the kind of reforms that we need. So I think we we shouldn't just throw our hands up and say there's nothing that can be done. Things can be done. It just requires politicians to be a bit more courageous, I think. And Barbara, Freddie makes the point in his piece that there was widespread sympathy for many free world leaders during the pandemic. But now in the post-pandemic world, the resentment of the masses, as he puts it, is back. How do you think that's going to play out over the next few years? What we're talking about is not likely to get better. So on the one hand, I completely agree. Inflation exacerbates the problem we're talking about. On the other hand, I would also argue that if inflation vanished tomorrow, and that is dropped back down to a manageable or perceived to be manageable two or three percent, it's not as if the conversation that we're having right now would be obsolete. Uh, so it's. I think it's a mistake to see this in terms of any single policy issue, whether it's COVID or inflation or climate change, we are talking, and that's why I think the historical perspective is so important, about an overarching trend that has been going on for many, many years and that leaves us, and this is really where we, I think, are all joined. Okay, fine. Given there are inevitably going to be problems in the world, given the historical trend that I'm talking about, what are the implications of that? What do we do with that? How do we fix what's broke? I think we agree. We said that I think the piece is exactly on target. It's pointing to a really serious problem of leadership in democratic society. It's been going on for some time. It's not forecast to get any better, which leaves us with the, okay, fine, we've diagnosed the illness. Now what do we do? So so Barbara, if, and this is an extremely big question, but then what what is the solution? 
you know, there's no, I would uh, not uh, dare to suggest there is a single solution. I have argued that one of the problems is that we see leaders, that is, we restless, quick to be judgmental and criticize followers, voters, constituents, stakeholders, whatever word you want to use, we see them as inept and inadequate. Fine. I think we can agree on that. So how do we fix people who are in a profession? Let's call for the sake of this discussion, leadership or profession. How do we get people to be better professionals? Guess what? We train them properly. We educate them properly. We develop them properly. I will give you the single example. I'll speak primarily for the United States, but I don't think exclusively. Certainly in the United States, the single organization slash institution that has been largely, not entirely exempt from the decline of the leadership class is the American military. It is still, in general, perceived to be well-run and well-managed. Guess what? They train their leaders. They educate their leaders. They develop their leaders. In another book, I hate to sound as if I'm selling books, but I have made the argument that until we treat leadership seriously, we don't just allow a real estate developer to come into the White House and from one day to the next be president, a, a person, yes, Donald Trump, who has had zero experience and zero expertise, we don't just say, oh, oh, that's fine. Am I going to let a brain surgeon with zero experience and zero expertise take out my brain tumor? I don't think so. Callum, just to finish on, Freddie points out obviously all these countries that are struggling with inflation in the West, but also that lots of authoritarian countries aren't handling it any better necessarily. Are there any countries that are handling inflation particularly well? Well, so in, in the round, Russia clearly has an inflation problem. The response of the central bank has certainly ensured that inflation is not a lot worse than people had thought it would be. So a few months ago, people were talking about 40 to 50 percent inflation in Russia. We're now at around 20 percent. So by their own standards, they've done actually, to be quite frank, pretty well. Obviously, they, they generated this problem for themselves in the first place. In other authoritarian countries, not really, because as I say, this is, you know, this is a largely a supply side shock. It's to do with supply chains that have seized up largely because China is pursuing a zero COVID policy. And once you've got that scenario, you've basically got a choice between keeping the economy going with high inflation and trying to basically crush the economy in order to crush inflation. So it's a very uh, unpalatable choice that really no country can get around. Well, Freddie, Barbara and Callum, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Next, I'm now joined by our columnist and commissioning editor, Mary Wakefield, and former Scientologist Claire Headley to talk about what it's like to escape from the Church of Scientology. Mary, in the magazine this week, you write about Tom Cruise and how his membership to the Church of Scientology seems to be holding him back. Can you explain a little about what you mean? I suppose what I mean is just that... um, For the last decade or so, he seems to have only played action heroes, a very sort of strong Superman look with Mission Impossible. And it seems to me, I I might be wrong, that this is something to do with his membership of the church and their desire to present him as the ideal human being, which for me precludes being a proper actor who can channel any sort of character. 
Claire, you were a member of the Church of Scientology, but left in 2005. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your experience and why you decided to leave? Yes, I was born into Scientology, and at the age of 16, I signed a billion-year contract and worked at the headquarters for 14 years. The abuses that I witnessed over the many years, particularly from David Miscavige directly, he's obviously the head of Scientology, and the conditions that we were living in, just very extreme circumstances that degenerated over the years that I was there. It just got to the point where I could no longer... I mean, I I lived a miserable existence, and I had absolutely no relationship with my family, who are still Scientologists, because I was at their headquarters, I never saw them. And my husband, uh, Mark, who I'd been married to at that point for 13 years, um, escaped without me. <laughs> so that was really the catalyst that uh, made me realize, honestly just made me wake up and realize that I was in fact miserable. I would honestly die if I stayed there. I was borderline suicidal. I'd just been through a, a hell of a 14 years. And so I made my escape. Um, what Could we ask, what was the appeal in the first place well, why does it draw people in? What does it offer someone like Tom Cruise or anyone? Well, particularly in, in the case of celebrities, the way that they hook them in to begin with is, um, first of all, they say, well, what's true for you is what's true. In other words, accept what you like, discard what you don't like, uh, use only what works for you, um, which makes it feel and seem fairly harmless at the outset. And again, at the outset, you're learning basic communication skills, pretty fundamental, not unique to Scientology whatsoever. But specifically for celebrities, their approach is that they tell celebrities, well, you're an artist and you will be targeted by bad people. So come into our fold and we will protect you from the bad people and we will... um, encourage your success and they use the celebrity membership that they have to kind of create this feeling that uh, for a new up-and-coming celebrity that they will be well connected to other successful artists or people in the industry and so forth and that's that's their foot in the door and it develops from there. And Claire you've spoken about your treatment whilst you were in the church how how have you been treated subsequently after having left the church? by the church oh that's a that's a long story that could fill a book practically (laughs) well I I mean I literally escaped with two hundred dollars in my pocket and the clothes on my back they chased me across state lines to try and catch me and bring me back that ended in a a confrontation in a bus station in Las Vegas where I had to sit on my purse on the floor so that they couldn't physically drag me out of there. Needless to say, obviously I'm here today talking to you. (laughs) They failed, and thank God they did. But starting my life over from scratch uh, has, you know, it's funny. You'd think, well, that that could sound challenging. But honestly, every single day since then, I've just been grateful that I got out of there and was able to start over 
in 2006, my husband, Mark Headley, started posting anonymously online simply to expose the abuses that we witnessed and kind of correct some stories that were not true. And at that point, we became targets of Scientology, and they started fair gaming us pretty extensively, including sending child services to our house, uh, tapping our phones, uh, all kinds of crazy things, collecting our trash. They have hate websites that they maintain on us, including videos from our family members that are still in Scientology. Um, but that, all of that said, being on the outside of Scientology has been incredibly therapeutic. I'm still working on it, but <laughs> yes. Do people within the church not find that wrong when they see this sort of behaviour happening to you? Does it not make existing members question the legitimacy of the church? Well, uh, great question. They are, existing members of Scientology are strongly discouraged from reading anything on the internet. The party line is that anything being spoken of is simply being it's by enemies of the church. They consider me, my husband, enemies of the church, obviously, because we're speaking out about our experiences and what we went through. So existing members, um, it would be considered a crime for them to read, listen to, and um, hear other points of view that are against what Scientology is promoting. Did you ever see David Miscavige hit anyone physically? Yes, uh, there are many, many times I witnessed David Miscavige abuse staff, hitting them, throttling them. Over an eight-year period, I witnessed it many, many times. Mary, you talk in your piece about David Miscavige, and, and you say, where is the outrage over Shelley Miscavige, who is David's wife, who seems to have disappeared? Why do you think people aren't particularly outraged by her disappearance? I think people outside think Scientology's a bit of a joke and it's not taken seriously. I don't think they have any idea that the sort of abuse um, that we're hearing about now actually goes on. And Claire, what do you think's happened to Shelley Miscavige? To my knowledge, Shelley has been essentially banished to a property that Scientology owns in a remote destination in California, close to Big Bear. It's essentially their most secure compound that only a handful of people even know of the location. Uh, I'd say maybe 40 people in Scientology know where it's physically located. It's in Running Springs. It's called CST, which means just Church of Spiritual Technology. It's where they engrave Hubbard's writings on plates to be put into capsules to be buried so that when Earth is destroyed, Scientology can continue. God. And is that where they'd have taken you if they'd managed to drag you off your bus stop? Very possibly, yes. I mean, mind you, even though I was, you know, I was pretty high up in the hierarchy at some point at at the, like, for example, in our lawsuit, they the church attorney said, well, isn't it true you were number three in command? I'm only saying that because it gives you an idea. I was in Religious Technology Center for many years, I actually reported directly to Shelley. That said, I'm, I wasn't a high-priced target like Shelley is. So I would have most likely been confined on the Hemet base, which is where I worked. They had a section there where they would put anybody 
who tried to escape. So I, I'm pretty certain that that would have been my fate had they succeeded in stopping my escape. Do you get the impression, Claire, that there are other people like yourself who are looking to escape? Um, and and has it? Do you think it's become harder to escape Scientology? Yes, I absolutely know that it's been hard. It's become harder over the years that I was there. It became increasingly difficult every time somebody would escape. They would, so to speak, shore up that hole, <laughs> so that people couldn't use that method to escape again. And things like that is where they've, for example, the Hemet compound where I worked. They put they they had a uh, fencing that had uh, razor sharp blades on the top of the fence and motion sensors and floodlights and security were armed with night vision goggles so that the, if somebody jumped the fence they could use those night vision goggles to find them so yes there's no doubt in my mind that there are absolutely people who want to escape and there's no doubt in my mind that they have made it incredibly harder for those people to do so so you can't physically walk out you can't just leave the premises no there's a i mean it's a fenced compound they have um 24 7 security guards policing the perimeter and they will prevent you from leaving if you try to even go jump the fence for example do you think they're getting worse in terms of the brutality and the control speaking for miscavige who i worked with for 15 years and saw him degenerating consistently over those years then yes i can only say that based on my extensive experiences, he is getting worse, not better. And I know people who have left subsequent to I, to myself and my husband confirmed that, yes, in fact, conditions worsened after we left. Does anyone criticize him or call him out ever? Within Scientology, most definitely not. And the reason for that is because he is a tyrant. You know, he has complete control and anyone who dares to question him meets with extreme consequences. And would Tom Cruise ever leave, do you think, or is that a him for life? Well, I'd never say it's impossible for somebody to leave. An additional problem in Scientology is that they keep extensive records on everybody. So anything that... Or uh, auditing files. Exactly, and sex checking and ethics, and that's just all Scientology's for basically extracting confessions from people, whether true, false, or indifferent, doesn't really matter. The point being that they have leverage over Tom. Shelley Miscavige used to personally man his staff. She would select the people, screen them, so on and so forth. So I could only guess what information they have on Tom that they would leak if he were to leave. That's not to say it's impossible. I mean, anybody could. You know, there's been many people who have left that I thought would never possibly leave. So I would never say never. But what I've seen instead is a pattern where anytime a movie comes out that has Tom Cruise in it, the tabloids leak these claims like, oh, he's leaving now. And it is inevitably just a PR stunt to try and make people think he's a decent guy. Well, congratulations on leaving yourself. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm very grateful every day. <laughs> I bet. Well, Claire, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. And finally, 
Will and I are now joined by Anil Boyle and James Amos, who's the organiser of the Boodles Boxing Ball, to talk about the strange world of white-collar boxing. Anil, in the magazine this week, you write about your experience of white-collar boxing. For the uninitiated who might be listening, what is white-collar boxing and how is it different to professional boxing? Uh, well, it's very simple. White collar boxing is is basically for people who don't box. It's probably the best way to to to, to describe it. But the rules are essentially three two minute rounds as opposed to three minute rounds, and you have to wear very padded headgear and sixteen ounce gloves, which means that they're thicker gloves, which people think are more dangerous, but it means there's more padding, so you're less likely to get badly beaten. But apart from that, you know, you're in a ring in front of a huge number of people with a referee and medical teams and, and the whole setup and the whole training and weights, uh, divisions and everything else. So it's, um, it's pretty serious, but meant to be fun. Did you say meant to be fun? Uh, when you had your experience of it, was it not so fun? Well, I, the ending was not fun, no, because I, I, I lost. I mean, to, just to give you the numbers, I, I was in the ring. I, well, I, I worked out, I did 168 hours of training in, in three months, which was a lot, really intense training. And I, and I lasted 68 seconds in the ring. And I did say to the promoter afterwards, I said, that's not bad, 68. He said, yeah, but you were down to 30. <laughs> so it's technically, technically 38 seconds I, I lasted in the ring. But I think as anybody who's ever got into a ring knows, you know, one, once you step inside the ring and the lights are there and there's 700 people, most have been drinking in any white-collar event, I'm guessing, for a long time. You know, it's a night out. It's usually a big gala dinner. He's dressed up. Everybody wants entertainment. And uh, let's face it, when people have had a few drinks, their idea of entertainment is, is probably booing if they don't, don't know you. So, you know, you're, you're kind of a baying mob and they want action. And a lot of people, me included, freeze. You know, everything I'd learned in three months, and, I, and I'm not kidding, I had trained manically. I couldn't have trained any harder and better. I really believed I was going to win. I, I had my victory speech, everything ready, you know, and what I was going to say, I was going to dedicate the trophy to a friend of mine in the audience for some emotional reason. Everything was, was set up. James, you're the director of the jewellery brand Boodles and the organiser of the Boodles Boxing Ball. Can you tell us a bit about the ball and, and how it came to be? Well, similarly to Anil, back in the summer of 2002, we came up with the idea for this boxing ball and we got my family's jewellery business, Boodles, to sponsor it. And um, as I got in the ring, I knew it was a bad idea and my opponent, who was four inches taller than me, punched me in the face three times in the first 10 seconds and I collapsed in the corner of the ring with a broken nose. I was surprised that the referee let the fight go on, but he did. I managed to get to the third round, but realised I wasn't cut out to be a boxer and I've been organising the event ever since. And as opposed to other types of boxing, what, what do you kind of enjoy about white-collar boxing? Well, we're not technically associated with the White Collar Boxing Association. We do it off our own bat. We've become a reasonably well-known boxing event, probably the best-known boxing event in the UK. And we've done eight now over the course of 20 years at four or five different big London locations. But it is really good fun. People like coming to watch their friends fighting each other. And that's the attraction, really. We then fluff the whole event up and make it really exciting and a spectacle for everyone with more than just the boxing. But ultimately, that's what drives the crowds there. And Neil, the way you describe your experience in your piece, I mean, there'll be certain readers, and I know this applies to me when I read your piece, who, who, who read your experience and it sounds like a sort of idea of hell in a way, you know, just putting yourself out there to get completely pummeled. I mean, could you tell us 
what motivated you to get involved with boxing when you'd never been involved before? I mean, why why did you put yourself through this? It was actually Amir Khan who said to me about a year ago in Dubai, I, I, we were talking about boxing, and he said, you know, there's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to run. You're in there. And, you, you know, it's not like going to the gym and you just like put some nice clothes and, and, and take some selfies and, and say to everybody, hey, I worked out for an hour. You are in there. And if you lose focus for one second, somebody compared it. And I think, James, you'll, you'll have a better idea on this. Somebody said to me, it's, it's, they can compare it to driving a Formula One car, where if you drop your concentration for one second, you're going to hit the barrier. And in a sense, boxing, I was told, you, you, you drop your guard for one half a second, it's all over. And that's exactly what happened to me. And I thought that the challenge of, of having to be so focused, and that leads back to the discipline, the eating, the training, because you think, I do not want to get in this ring and be beaten up and collapse in a heap, which is actually what happened. But I don't regret it, because it, to me, it was if I could get through the training program and, and live kind of like a pro boxer, but you know what, eat properly, go running, train in the morning, that to me would be, would be success. And I was told, and again, James, maybe you agree with this, is that you know the, the, you, the moment you step in the ring as a white collar boxer, you've already won because you, you've done the journey. And whatever happens, hey, you're, a, you're already a winner. And you know, I, I, I wasn't a winner, I lost, but, um, <laughs> but I, I did after it was over, I thought, no, I, I have no regrets. You know, I, 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 I'm 56, but I've never felt physically better. And, and you know, after two, three days of a bruised ego, I was um, being back on the palm in Dubai running in 40 degrees heat. I, I don't want to lose this fitness level. I completely agree with what you're saying, Anil. It really is heroic to get in the ring. And I said that on uh, last Friday night when we had our event. To get in the ring is so daunting. And in normal life, if you get hit in the face, which fortunately hasn't happened to me very often, <laughs> you have a right to sort of put your head in your hands and um, look like you're in pain. Well, in boxing, you can't do that. You've just got to carry on. Otherwise, you're going to get hit in the face again. And also, all your best friends are sitting around you and they're not able to help. They just want to see the spectacle. It's, uh, it's exciting, but it's, it's a relief when it's over for everyone. <laughs> yeah. And Anil, for people who are listening who are considering getting into boxing, what would your advice be to them? I, I would advise every single person I know to do it. Because, because like James said, the, the end result, yeah, you'll get in the ring and it's a, you can look at it as a big night out in front of your friends and, and to many people it is. But I, I just don't believe there's any other sport where you have no choice but to take it seriously. You know, I've done everything, tennis, this, that, the other, and everything ends up a bit of a laugh, to be honest. You know, you're out with your friends and there's a training schedule. You probably miss half of it because you want to go down the pub. You have no choice in boxing. And, and, and I guess, depends what kind of person you are, you know, it is so tough. You know, and, and I, I, was, I was 80 kilos. I tried for 15 years to get to 75 kilos. I, I never could with a lot of training, and I ended up 70 kilos with three months of boxing. And, and I didn't really change that much eating. It's just the, the, you're burning sometimes eight, 900 calories in one hour in, in boxing. You know, and, and the most intense boot camp I've done would be 300 calories. So it's, it's pretty intense. It's pretty ferocious. It's, as Anil said, it's only uh, three rounds of two minutes each. But it's exhausting. And then you think the professional boxers do 12, min 12 rounds of three minutes each, and you just don't quite understand how they could possibly do it. It's amazing for fitness. But I think the other piece of advice uh, for anyone thinking about getting into boxing is that if they do ally themselves with one of these events, they're usually raising money for charity. And our event has raised three and a half million pounds over 20 years, which is pretty significant. And the charities have benefited hugely from it. So mostly the boxers are doing it for fundraising reasons as well.
I should add to that as well that, that, that I found at the, at the end of our event that everybody, there was 22, 11 fights, 22 people. We've all become friends and, and, and you know, we've all made new friends. Uh, it's, it's a great experience. And in fact, ironically, the guy who uh, beat me up is taking me out to dinner on Saturday, you know, and <laughs> I think he feels very bad about it. Don't, uh, don't but, get into you know, a fight over the bill. <laughs> <laughs> well, I might spike his dinner or something or his drink, but, uh, but no, you know, you, you, it's a chance to meet new people. I, I, I don't know about you guys, but, you know, you, you live your lives with your work and family and certain ages you get to, you just don't meet new people. You know, you're just stuck in, in your, your, your understanding. I've got my kids and friends. This is the first time I've met new people probably in 10 years that I've become uh, sociable with. And it's something you'll look back on for the rest of your life. Here I am talking about it 20 years later. You're, you're talking about it a week or two after you've done mm. it. But it's one of those milestones in your life that not many people have done. And everyone can feel very proud of themselves. I really think so. Just a final quick question for you both. You've both been in the ring, as you say, yours was 20 years ago, uh, James and yours, and Neil was um, very recently. Would you ever go back into the ring again? Absolutely not. Anil? <laughs> <laughs> um um, absolutely, absolutely not times 20. <laughs> so a brilliant experience, but never do it again. Never again. <laughs> we would encourage lots and lots of other people to do it. <laughs> Anil and James, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. And that's everything this week. As ever, please do pick up the magazine to read everything we've talked about. I'd also like to say a big thank you on behalf of Will and myself to Sam Holmes, our producer, who's sadly leaving us to go off to the BBC. We'll be very sad to say goodbye to him. I'm Laura Prendergast and I do hope you'll join us again next week.